I invite the rest of you, if you brought a Bible, to go ahead and open up to Ephesians chapter 4. If you have a bulletin handout, it might help you follow along, see where we're going. We've been going through the book of Ephesians. We finished the first three chapters last Sunday. That means we're embarking on chapter 4, looking at what Paul has to say about the church and about individual Christian salvation, pretty much paragraph by paragraph. Covered the first three chapters, and now we're on chapter four, which is a major transition in the book, just so you're aware. It's probably the biggest transition in the whole book, and it's one I've been looking forward to because it's an exciting transition of what Paul's going to do in his letter here to these Ephesian Christians, which also is a letter to us because the Word of God is a living document and it's intended for Christians of all ages. The Holy Spirit is our teacher today, wants us to understand our position in Christ and what we're supposed to do as a church, and that's why the book of Ephesians was written. And so let's go ahead and look at Ephesians chapter 4. I'm just going to read starting at verse 1 all the way through verse 6, and we'll begin there as Paul continues to teach us. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance to one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit and the bond of peace. There is one body and one spirit, just as also you were called in the one hope of your calling, one Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all, who is over all and through all and in all. And what I wrote there at the top, of, just by way of a summary on the handout there, is after spending three chapters of explaining our identity and sufficiency in Christ, by virtue of Christ's atoning death and resurrection on our behalf, the Apostle Paul now commands Christians in the last three chapters of this book to live out the Christian life in light of our resources we have in Christ. Whereas there was only one imperative or command in the first three chapters, Paul gives Christians at least 40 imperatives or commands in the last three chapters. The emphasis in chapter 4 is on the preservation and progress of true spiritual unity for the church and individual Christians. Unity in the body is one of the marks of true spiritual growth and maturity. That's what I wanted to emphasize today. I put there humility, dot, 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 then unity. I was trying to trace what is the main theme of Paul's argument, what he's trying to get at here in chapter 4. And at least in the first half of chapter 4 in Ephesians, his theme is unity, and that's unity in the church. It's true unity, that Christians would be united. Christians would be unified. So that's his main goal. And look at, for example, he starts out talking about exhorting Christians to be unified, and then he's going on in his argument. Look at chapter 4, verse 13, talking about unity. He says, uh, we have gifts in the church, and there's a reason God gave uh, gifts to the church. One of the reasons was is that we would grow and mature until we all, as Christians, attain to the unity of the faith. That's one of the goals for the church. Christ wants the church to be unified and to grow. And of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man. And so Paul is equating spiritual maturity with unity. Unity is spiritual maturity, is what he's saying. To the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. And then verse 16, at the end, he's talking about all of this is going on so that we might have the growth of the body. So Paul says, uh, Christ's desire for us as a church, a collective group of Christians, is Christ wants us to grow, he wants us to mature, he wants us to spiritually develop on an individual basis, but also as a church, as a body, as a group, as a corporate gathering of people. And the way you grow... One of the signs of true growth and maturity in the Christian life is unity. And that's true harmony getting along around the truth. 
That is a very difficult task. It's a noble task. It's one of the greatest tasks of the church as we might grow in unity, get along for the right reasons in the right way. But it's one of the hardest things to do, true unity. For example, if you've been a Christian for any length of time and you've ever attended another church or been a part of another church or a member of a previous church, maybe some of your past experiences are that whatever local church you may have been a part of, there was not always unity in that church. There wasn't necessarily unity always from the leadership level or at the lay level or vice versa. But no doubt, if you've been a part of a church previously, there were probably times and indications where there wasn't unity going on in the church. And that's just a reality. That's the way it is, because churches are filled with sinful people, aren't they? And Grace Bible Fellowship has its share of sinful people. No, as a matter of fact, we're all sinful people. Amen. Amen. And so... God is trying to take a bunch of sinful people, yet if they're Christians, they've been forgiven, yet they still have to battle with sin, and make them unified and get along around the truth. That is the goal of Christ for the church. That is the goal of maturity, is true spiritual unity. Like I said, it is very hard to do, to be totally unified in the right way. Nevertheless, that's the theme of chapter 4, so we're going to look at that in some practical ways that we can think about on an individual basis and also as a local church that is only 17 weeks old of how we can have the same target and goal of becoming unified in a real legitimate way to please Christ. Because unity does please Christ. Tim just read that wonderful psalm about how it pleases God when brothers in the Lord are unified in a real way. Not Remember, it's, it, and it's true unity. It's not unity... Uh, for the sake of just getting along. It is unity around the truth. That's Christian unity. So we all have to have the same goal, and that's truth, and we become unified around ultimate truth. But I want you to flip, just by way of introduction, look at John chapter 17, because I want you to see one of Jesus' greatest prayers and one of his desires while he was praying. John 17, the whole chapter basically, is a prayer that Jesus prayed. And most of his prayer is spent, he's praying for his disciples, and he's praying for other believers of all ages. In this prayer, Jesus prayed for you. Jesus prayed for me. If you're a Christian, in this prayer, Jesus prayed for us. The good news is, did you know that Jesus' prayers are always answered? 100% of the time they are. That's the encouraging news. But look at John 17, verse 21. This is uh, towards the end of Jesus' prayer. Oh, yeah, look at verse 20. I'll start there. Jesus is praying to the Father, and he says, I do not ask or pray in behalf of these alone, my 12 or 11 apostles or disciples, but for those also who believe in me through their word. That's me and you. I'm, I'm praying for every believer that comes our way. Verse 21, what is he praying? What is Jesus praying on our behalf? That they may all be one, that they may be unified. Jesus prayed that we as Christians would be unified, that we would be one. And he's talking about unity around the truth, legitimate unity in the church. That they may be one, even as our, uh, thou, Father, art in me and I in you, even the, the way that we are one, Father. I pray that they would be one. Look at verse 22. Oh, no, at the end of verse 21. In order that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. Jesus says one of the greatest testimonies to the world, the unbelieving world, is when the unbelieving world looks on Christians or a local church and he sees harmony and unity at the most intimate and the deepest level. That is a testimony to the unbelieving world. The unbelieving world is supposed to look at a local church and see how well they get along, how unified they are, how like-minded they are in purpose, vision, and everything that they do that is a testimony to the unbelieving world as they are scratching their heads saying, I wish I had that kind of unity. I wish I belonged to a group of people like that who got along so much and cared for one another and had such unity at the deepest level on so many different areas. That's what Jesus is saying. The church that is truly obedient will truly be unified and be a great testimony to the world. 
he goes on and emphasizes that truth. Uh, look at verse 20, 21. Oh, no, the end of verse 21. I'm sorry. Yeah, that was the point. Sorry. Uh, verse 23, sorry. I, and then he goes on. I in them, you and me, Father, that, we are, that they may be perfected in unity. That's the goal, that we would be perfected or mature in unity. Why? In order that the world may know that you sent me, Father, and that you love them. So that's one of the greatest testimonies that we have to the unbelieving world is our own unity. Because if we are not unified as a local church, and a group of professing Christians, and we're backbiting and bickering and fighting and harping on one another, undermining one another, and yet we believe in Jesus, and you need to believe in Jesus to be saved, and the unbelieving world is looking on, what are they thinking? Well, you're a bunch of hypocrites. You don't even get along. You don't have harmony and unity. You don't love one another. And it distorts the image and the picture of who Christ really is. So unity is an absolute priority for Christians and for the corporate church. And it needs to be one of our main goals is unity in the truth so that we can be the most effective testimony to the watching world. Because people are watching, aren't they? I know I have friends and relatives who are not saved who are watching this church to see, hmm, is it legitimate? What does it reflect? It needs to reflect humility. Go back to Ephesians chapter 4 and let's go ahead and look at some of these truths that I gleaned out of here. I came up with three principles regarding unity And the first thing that Paul shows us in this passage, before you get to ultimate unity and true maturity and getting along, there's a place to begin to have true unity, isn't there? And that's what Paul says. And as I looked at these words and the things he was emphasizing, before you get to unity, it begins with humility. And that's why I put humility, then unity. So that's his development. You've got to have true humility first before you get to true unity. If you don't have humility, you're not going to have true unity. just not going to happen. Um, So point number one, true spiritual unity is a deliberate, ongoing pursuit. It is deliberate. It is something you have to plan for. You have to consciously think about if we want to be unified as a church. It doesn't just happen passively. You can't do it. It's kind of like in a marriage. In your marriage, you need to cultivate your marriage as husband and wife. You need to plan. You need to guard. You need to protect your time. You need to make priorities. You need to spend time together. You need to be deliberate in your communication. Prayer with one another. Confession with one another. All these things are deliberate, systematic, with intent, so that you can have true unity in your marriage. Same thing in the church. It's deliberate. And so here's what the Apostle Paul says. He says, I therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, I entreat you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. So the Apostle Paul starts out by referring to himself as a prisoner of the Lord. We talked about that in earlier chapters. What Paul was saying is he is an apostle. He is a very mouthpiece of God. He is speaking authoritatively on behalf of God and the Lord Jesus Christ himself. He's speaking as an apostle. This is the word of God. What Paul says here is what God says. Therefore, we need to take action. We need to heed what it says. It's kind of interesting, and I put this in your notes there. He says, I, therefore, the prisoner of the Lord, entreat you. I'm reading from the the New American Standard says, entreat you. And then you've got the NIV, which says, I urge you. It's different ways they translate this Greek word that the Apostle Paul used. I urge you. The New King James says, I implore you. The King James says, I beseech you. And then the New American Standard says, I entreat you. And actually, the best literal translation is, I command you, or I exhort you. It's not Paul's begging and pleading, and boy, sure, I I hope you get around to it. No, this is a command authoritatively from the Apostle Paul. And as a result, because it is an exhortation or an apostolic command, we are obligated to obey. 
So this is of the highest priority. This is from the Apostle Paul himself that came from God. This is a command that we need to obey. I need to stop there. Being the, This is a command or an imperative. Imperative is just another word for a command. And I made reference to the fact that in the next three chapters, chapter 4, chapter 5, chapter 6, the Apostle Paul is going to give 40 commands to Christians. 40 imperatives. These are things God wants you to do and obey. And basically, he didn't give one command in the first three chapters. And that is very typical of the Apostle Paul when he writes his letters to the churches. Because the first three chapters, Paul is just laying out truth, doctrine. Here's your position in Christ. Here are the principles and the realities of the Christian life. And then he concludes, and that's why in chapter 4, verse 1, it says, I therefore, what is the word therefore, therefore? The word therefore refers you back to everything that he was just talking about. He just told us three great chapters of great truths and great realities that are true about individual Christians in the corporate church. Uh, Christian, didn't you realize? He's reminding us. Therefore, remember, you're, uh, if you're a Christian, you got saved, God chose you in eternity past. He elected you before the foundation of the world based on his love. He predestined you and marked you out with affection before the world was even created. He saved you by virtue of Jesus Christ's death and resurrection. When you were saved, he sealed you forever in eternity with the Holy Spirit. These are all these great things that God did for us in salvation. And didn't you know that someday you're going to receive rewards and an inheritance from God as one of his children? And then he goes on to chapter 2 to talk about all these other corporate blessings and promises that we have by virtue of the fact that we are a part of the church. We're part of the family of God. You're going to inherit great things. Uh, Also in the future, you're going to get rewards from God based on faithfulness and ministry in this life. So Paul lays out all that theology. And now there's this new thing that you're part of called the church This new body, the new man that didn't exist in all of history. And now you are privileged to be a part of it and know what it is all about, this revelation of the church. So he's laying out truth after truth after truth, doctrine after doctrine after doctrine. And then he says, therefore, in light of all of that stuff that is true about you, now live these things out. So that's what an imperative is. In light of all this truth, now do, 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 do the following 40 things, is what he's saying. Live in light of who you are. Now that you know who you are in Christ, live like it. So the first three chapters is our position in Christ. The last three chapters is the application of the Christian life. Living out the Christian life. That's awesome. Look at Romans chapter 12 real quick, because this is an important principle. And I I just don't want to gloss it over. Uh, Romans chapter 12, where the Apostle Paul actually uses almost the exact same phrase as he does in Ephesians chapter 4 verse 1. Because, by way of reminder, Ephesians 4.1, he says, I therefore entreat you, or I therefore urge you. And then in Romans chapter 12, verse 1, he says this, I urge you, therefore. It's basically the exact same phrase. And therefore refers back to what? Actually, in Romans, therefore refers back to the first 11 chapters of doctrine, teaching, theology. Here's what you were like when you were a sinner. Here's who you are now that you're saved. And then after 11 chapters of doctrine, teaching, your position in Christ, then he says this, now, therefore, live like a Christian and do these following 67 things in your life, he goes on to say in Romans. Because it's an important truth. Basically, you cannot live the way God wants you to live unless you first know how God wants you to live, right? So knowledge comes first. In order to live the right way, we've got to know how to Uh, live the right way. We've got to have the right truth. That's why Jesus said, know the truth and the truth will set you free. 
You can't live like a free person until you know the truth. You can't live in ignorance. You'll you'll live a defeated Christian life without proper knowledge. That's why Jesus said, know the truth. So going back to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 1. So that's why Paul says, I therefore. So that word therefore is very important. It's a conjunction. Did you know conjunctions are important? Yeah, they are. Very important. Every word of God is inspired. Every word of God is important. Every word of God contributes to the argument and the significance of the truth God's trying to communicate to us. So uh, therefore, in light of everything I just said, Paul pleads. He doesn't just plead with us. He commands us. Now you need to do what? What does he command us? In verse 1, he says, I, I urge you or I command you to walk in a manner worthy of your calling. Basically, the command here is, now you need to walk like this. And the word walk, used by the Apostle Paul, consistently is a, a, a metaphorical term referring to your lifestyle, your pattern of behavior, the habits in your life, ongoing daily living. That is your walk. And Paul is saying, walk the talk. Don't just talk it, all these theological truths that are true about you. Now live it. So walk the talk is what he's saying. This, if this is not regular or routine, or a regular part of the way you live the Christian life, then it needs to be, is what he's saying. So I command you, I exhort you to walk in a worthy manner, or literally, I'm commanding you now to walk a Christ-like life. Live a Christ-like life. That's what you need to do. We are obligated to do it. It is a command. And if we don't walk accordingly, we are in sin. We are disobeying. We need to ask God's forgiveness. We need to ask God's help, that He would help us to walk a worthy life. And he says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. In other words, you profess to be a Christian. You profess to know Christ. You profess to have supernatural Holy Spirit living inside of you. So all the resources are there. The same Holy Spirit that rose Jesus from the dead and created the world lives inside of you, Christian. You have accessible power there to live a worthy life, to live a life like Christ. Now do it, he says. So it's a command. Walk in a manner worthy of your calling as a Christian. So that's just an awesome truth. Uh, True spiritual unity is a deliberate, ongoing pursuit. And by the way, uh, the verb here is used in the present tense, which means it's an ongoing, regular pattern of life. It's not a one-time thing. Has anybody here arrived in the Christian life? Oops, I haven't. Last week I challenged you and I challenged myself in light of that great verse at the end of Ephesians chapter 3 where it talks about how God's Holy Spirit is living inside of us and as a result we have supernatural dynamite power from God himself to do uh, beyond all that we can ask or even imagine that God is able to do and he does it through us. And I challenged you, are you praying that God would do supernatural things through your life as a Christian? And I said, I had a prayer request that God would work in my life and do exceedingly abundant beyond all that I could ask or think of. One of those things was that I could be the perfect husband. And several of you laughed. Because that is impossible in human strength. And and so I asked you, pray for me that I would become the perfect husband. By the way, I did not accomplish that this week. (laughs) Why are you laughing? Some of you actually look surprised. That's very disappointing. Apparently you weren't praying for me. But anyway... The point is, in chapter 4, verse 1, the Apostle Paul says, this is present tense, this is an ongoing practice, this is a lifelong call. None of us will arrive. Even the Apostle Paul, the greatest Christian who ever lived, the greatest apostle there was in Philippians says, I have not arrived yet. I am not there and I'm not going to in this life. But with God's help, I'm still pressing for the goal. That's the point. Keep your eyes on the target, keep your eyes on the goal, and keep forging ahead. Endurance, perseverance, that's part of the Christian life. So it's not the perfection of your life, it's the direction of your life. We're all going to, if you graph the Christian life, it at least should be going this direction. And over time, it, it eventually goes up, believe it or not. Okay? That's graphing the Christian life. Does it go like this at times? Oop, yeah. Does it go, woo, way down there? Yeah. 
Hard week, hard day. That's the Christian life. That's what Paul is talking about here. Present tense, it's a lifelong calling. It's a pursuit of every Christian. Their very heart is that they have a desire to live a life that is worthy of representing Jesus Christ. And Paul commands us to do so. We're expected to do so. We have the wherewithal to do so because of our resources in God. So now we need to get on the business of doing that. And by the way, the next three chapters, this is the very theme of the next three chapters. Verse 1 is, walking in a manner worthy of our calling. Chapters 4, 5, and 6, that's what it's all about. These 40 commands are giving are all given to fulfill a worthy walk. A worthy walk is just another way of talking about a mature Christian, a consistent Christian. Somebody, you watch the pattern of their life, and they're just a godly person. Even keel, consistent, virtuous, modeling Christ-likeness. That's a worthy calling. It's just the mature Christian life. That's the goal of every Christian, and it should be. It's not easy to do, though. And there's a way to proceed. Well, how do you do that, the Apostle Paul? How do you live a consistent, regular, worthy, godly, Christ-like life? It is so hard. Yeah, it is. It's impossible in our own strength. Well, there are keys to get on the right road of doing that. And the keys are point number two. The Apostle Paul says the key to living the worthy, Christ-like life on a regular, consistent, long-term basis is, number two, true spiritual unity, because that's the ultimate goal, is dependent upon selfless attitudes. If I want to live the mature, worthy Christian life and be helping and contributing to unity in the corporate body and the universal body of Christ, it starts with me. It starts at the individual level, and it starts with my attitude. It starts with internal virtues and disciplines in my life. Because that's what Paul tells us. Look at uh, verses 2 and 3. This is what he says. The goal, or uh, we, we, the command is to live a worthy life, to walk a consistent godly life. The goal is to do it so that you reach maturity individually and corporately. Well, how do you get there? So the stepping stones, starting at verse 2 and 3. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing forbearance with one another in love, being diligent to preserve the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace. So he just gives all these bullets of virtues that need to be regular and routine in the life of a Christian and practiced and prayed about, implemented and perfected and matured. So that's the challenge. True spiritual maturity is dependent upon selfless attitudes. And I listed these attitudes here that Paul mentions. And I think there's a strategic order he has in mind because the first attitude, the first discipline, the first internal virtue that every Christian needs to have and become a master of, or at least cognizant of, is humility. Many have said throughout 2,000 years of church history that humility is the greatest Christian virtue. I believe that. I believe that humility is the greatest Christian virtue is because it is so antithetical to what is normal for a human. What is normal for us as humans is ego. It's all about me. Me, me, me. Me, myself, and I. When I was a baby, the first word I learned was me, 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 gimme, gimme, gimme. And the very antithesis and opposite of that is humility. Now, here's some interesting things about this word that Paul uses when he says humility. Christian, you need to have humility in verse 2. First of all, the word literally means lowliness of mind. That means you don't have a high, you have a low view of self. You don't have an inflated view of self. You have a sober view of yourself. It's a sober, legitimate, honest assessment of yourself and who you are. Not a distorted, inflated view of yourself and how great you are, because none of us are. That's like in Romans chapter 12, where Paul commands us, or actually the Holy Spirit does, 
It basically says you need to have a sober assessment of yourself. Do not think more highly of yourself than you ought. It's easy to think more highly of yourself, isn't it? I know it is for me. It comes naturally. I do it every day. You've got to fight against it and resist it. So humility does not come naturally at all to us as sinful human people, but that's what the Apostle Paul says. It starts with humility, the greatest Christian virtue. Lowliness of mind. Very specific word. It's, this is interesting. Um, this Greek word is used many times in the New Testament that Christians need to be humble. But prior to Jesus and the writing of the New Testament and the Christian apostles, did you know that in the Greek language the word humility didn't even exist? It wasn't even a word. Because they despised the concept. Famous Greeks for 300 years even taught against the idea. If you have, and I don't know how they did that without the word humility, but anyway, the essence was if you are humble, then you are weak. You are weak sauce. You are not worthy. You are not a true man. You ain't going to arrive. So they didn't have the word humility. So Jesus and the apostles and the Holy Spirit had to make up a Greek word. And we call it humility. Lowliness of mind. An appropriate assessment of yourself. Lowliness of mind. What I mean by correct assessment of yourself, you need to look at the mirror of the Word of God as it reflects back to you with its perfect high and holy standard of what God expects of us and look at ourselves and examine ourselves. Our actions, our words, and then those places that nobody else can do in our attitudes, our thoughts, our motives, our convictions. And let the Word of God reflect back and help us assess ourselves. That doesn't come naturally. But a humble, humble person will examine themselves honestly before God in light of God's perfect standard to realize we need to be humble. And the reason we need to be humble are two main reasons is because we are sinful people, aren't we? That's why the Apostle Paul in Romans chapter 7, 14 through 25, he was as honest as could be. He was an apostle. He was the peak of his ministry in Romans chapter 7. And yet the conclusion about himself was he said, sin lives in me. That's what he said. He said it two or three times. And then he said, nothing good dwells in me. And then he concluded that so disgusted with himself. He said, oh, wretched man that I am. That's what he said. You know, I can say the same thing about myself, if I'm honest. Inherently, in and of himself, as a human being, as a sinful human being, there was nothing good in him. Anything that was good or virtuous about the Apostle Paul, it was all of Christ. It was the Holy Spirit living in him. That's what he said in Galatians. Anything that's good or admirable or respectable or great that was accomplished by me or through me, it was all of God. It was through God's Holy Spirit. It was because He made me a new person. Nevertheless, every one of us, even though we're Christians, we have the residue of sin still in our life. And it will plague us till the day we die or until Jesus returns. And in the meantime, that's why we need to have an honest assessment of ourself and it needs to reflect true humility. We need to be humble in light of the fact that every single one of us is made of feet of clay and we are susceptible to every conceivable sin and temptation coming down the pike. So we need to be humility in light of the fact that we are sinners. We also need to be, have humility also, the second reason, because we're creatures. God is the creator. We are creatures. God is infinite. We are finite. God is omnipotent. We are weak. God is not limited. We are limited. Hence the need for true humility. And that's Romans chapter 12. Have an accurate assessment of yourself and of myself. So we pursue this virtue called humility. Um, 
couple of other things about it. Oh, yeah, just by way of definition, what is humility, lowliness of mind? It's the opposite of pride. The book of Proverbs just condemns pride all over the place, right? Because pride comes before the fall, right? Somebody who's just filled with pride all the time, they're headed for trouble in life, even though they don't realize it. So humility is the opposite of pride. Humility is the opposite of arrogance. Humility is the opposite of boasting. I am the greatest. Who said that? Muhammad Ali made it famous. That, that's pride. That is arrogance. That is not humility. As a matter of fact, ever since he started saying that and coined that phrase, you know, that became standard. If you were a professional athlete, it was okay to say that, that you were the greatest. And people applauded that arrogant attitude. Contrary to the Bible, uh, talking about yourself all the time, quoting your resume all the time. This is pride. It's the opposite of humility. The, the book of Proverbs says, let other men praise you and not your own lips. Right? That's humility. Humility is the ability to say sorry and to admit wrongdoing. That's why the book of uh, the New Testament says, confess your sins. That means verbalize and admit where you have been wrong. Admit that you're a sinner. If you can't say sorry, you lack humility. If you can't say sorry, you have a problem with pride. Now, I don't know, some of you are old enough to remember Happy Days, right? Happy Days, the TV show. And there was a guy uh, called Arthur Fonzarelli, the Fonz. The Fonz could do no wrong. At least the Fonz didn't think he could ever do wrong. The Fonz was cool. The Fonz made the right decision all the time. The Fonz was never wrong, but occasionally in their 10-year series, I think four times Fonzie was actually wrong. And four times Fonzie was convicted that maybe he actually possibly was wrong, and so they showed on the show. And, uh, and when Fonzie came to that point four times in his life where he actually realized that there was a hint of a possibility that he might be wrong, that he, had, he realized he had to admit that he was wrong to somebody. And he could never do it. And he'd always say, I was... And he just couldn't get it out. And he'd go on, and then they'd go to a commercial break. Fonzie just could not say he was wrong. If you've got the Fonzie problem or Fonzie complex, that's, the lack, that's a lack of humility. What is your quotient for being able to admit you're wrong and to say you are sorry to somebody? When was the last time you said, to, said sorry verbally and sincerely to your spouse? Just think about that. If it's been more than a week, we've got a problem. At least, well, anyway, I won't comment on that. Uh, that should be a regular, ongoing routine in your life of maintain- maintenance in your relationship as a sinner. Two sinners living together. When was the last time you said sorry to your parents? Those of you who have parents. That needs to happen. That's part of honoring and respecting your parents. When was the last time, this is a hard one. When was the last time, parents, you said sorry to your children? I I've, I've done a lot of counseling over the last 15 years, particularly because I worked with young children with parents. It is not uncommon for many parents, particularly dads, when I ask them that question, to think about it, well, I can't remember the last time I ever said sorry to one of my children. I'm thinking, wow. No wonder they're bitter at you. No wonder they don't want to talk to you now that they're older. No wonder that they don't trust you. You never showed humility. You mean you never did wrongdoing as a dad in your life of 20 years raising your child? I find that hard to believe. I have to apologize to my kids weekly. Maybe that should be another prayer request. The perfect dad, not just the perfect husband. But anyway, being able to apologize. When was the last time you apologized or repented to a fellow Christian? Here's another hard one. When was the last time you apologized or repented to somebody who wasn't a Christian? And maybe it was one of your relatives who wasn't a Christian and you were guilty. I know I've been guilty as a Christian of sinning against offending needlessly people in my life who are relatives who are not Christians. We need to do that. Confess your sins to one another. That is a sign and a mark of true humility. 
here's a shocking truth. Uh, I don't know if you realize that, but did you know that God is not humble? God the Father is not humble by virtue of definition. Because if you're humble, like I said, we're humbling in light of our confession that we're sinners, and we're, we are humble in light of the fact that, fact that we are creation and limited. And I, I haven't been able to find a scripture. And there's a, a professor I had when I was in college who pointed this out. God is not humble. And it kind of took me by the What do you mean God is not humble? And then I quickly went to the passages where it said that Jesus was humble and meek. And he said, well, yeah, for 33 years Jesus was humble and meek. But before Jesus came to earth, Jesus wasn't humble and meek. And after Jesus rose again and ascended to heaven, he wasn't humble and meek. Jesus is not humble and meek right now. And when Jesus returns in the future, he's not going to be humble and meek. Humility is not a re- an attribute and a virtue of God. I was like, wow. As a matter of fact, Philippians 2, listen very carefully. Or if you have your Bible, you can look at this regarding Jesus. Because the, the Gospels do say that Jesus was humble and meek. Well, I thought you said that if you're humble, you're humble in light of the fact that you're a sinner and you're, that you're create creation. You're not the creator. Yeah, that's true. But it's different for Jesus. He was humble. But he wasn't always humble. He became humble. So listen to Philippians 2. It talks about how in the incarnation, there were some things that changed about Jesus. Not his attributes, not his character, not his essence, not who he was. But the way he related to humanity and in terms of how he acted on his role as the Savior for the world. Philippians chapter 2. Do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit. Uh, look at verse 5. And this whole passage is about being humble. Have this attitude in yourselves. What attitude? A humble attitude. Well, what's, what does that look like? Humble attitude in yourselves, which was also in Christ Jesus. Notice it's while he was on earth as the Savior. Who, although he existed in the form of God, did not regard equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, not of his deity, but of his right to glory, taking the form of a bondservant, being made in the likeness of men, and being found in appearance as a man. He humbled himself. Notice he did it at a point in time. He humbled himself. Jesus was not humble in eternity past, before he came down to planet earth. But he became humble. He humbled himself. And the act of humility was then he willingly died on our behalf as a servant for our sins. That was his act of humility. That's uh, the attribute of humility regarding Jesus. Jesus had no sin. Jesus was not a creation. Jesus was the creator. But he was humble. Jesus is not humble now and he's not going to be in the future. A lot of people have a distorted, unbalanced view of who Jesus is and they just think he's still the humble, little, meek, weak, sissy Jesus who can't defend himself. And he's not a holy God. Well, I want to add to that balance. If you have your Bible, look at 2 Thessalonians because this is very important regarding this attribute of humility, what Christ is like, what God is like, because we need to have the right perspective and attitude of who God is in order to have the right attitude of humility about ourselves. because we are the creature, God is the creator. We need an accurate, majestic view, a high view of God and the Lord Jesus Christ because then that will help us define our view of what humility is and reverence before Almighty God. And the Lord Jesus Christ is Almighty. He is to be feared and revered. He is in majestic glory right now. He's going to return someday as the judge of the world. And we need to live with humility in light of that great truth. So 2 Thessalonians says this. The Apostle Paul is talking about Christians, and he says we always should be giving thanks to God, or we are always giving thanks to God for you, Christians. And it's only fitting because your faith, the Thessalonians, is greatly enlarged. And the love of each of you toward one another grows even greater. Thessalonians, they were obedient Christians. Paul was very pleased with them. But they were persecuted people. Verse 4, Therefore we are so speak proudly of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions. Thessalonians were not like the Corinthians. The Corinthians had problems. The Thessalonians were an obedient church. Verse 5, 
This is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment, so that you may be considered worthy of the kingdom of God, for which indeed you are suffering. For after all, it is only just for God to repay, look at that, the wrath of God. How is he going to repay? How is he going to punish sinners? God is going to repay in the future, verse 6, with affliction, those who afflict you. The retribution of God is coming down to planet earth in the future. How is it coming down? It is coming down through the appointed judge. That is the Lord Jesus Christ when he returns. That is not a humble Jesus. That is Jesus, the King of kings and Lord of lords and judge of the earth. It's the opposite of humility. Verse 7, God is going to afflict his enemies and to give it relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well. When the Lord Jesus shall be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. Get this, verse 8. Dealing out retribution, literally vengeance, punishment to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of the Lord Jesus. And these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory and His power. That is an awesome, scary, frightening, yet true passage about the Lord Jesus Christ coming in the future. And I could go to Revelation 19 and read the same thing, but I won't. But it just goes on to talk about Jesus is not humble, meek, lowly Jesus anymore. He's not in the weakness of human flesh anymore. He's in a resurrected body. He is majestic and Lord of all, coming as King of kings, Lord and judge of all men. So going back to Ephesians. But I just thought that was an important truth, great truth about God, what he expects of us. He expects humility of us. Now I realize um, some of you are thinking you're not going to get through all these points. Actually, the last minute I decided, you know what, there's just too much here. I can't possibly get through all these attributes and virtues because they are so important. So we are going to get to point three uh, in two weeks. But right now I do want to cover the next attribute that he gives because it goes hand in hand with humility. So Christian, we are commanded to live and start with humility. It doesn't come naturally. We need God's help to humble us, to keep us humble. We need others around us to keep us humble and accountable, confessing our sins on a regular basis. And then he says... Uh, It starts with humility and gentleness. And those go together, by the way. They complement one another. Humility is the attitude about yourself. Gentleness is how you treat others. So they complement one another. And they have similar meanings. Gentleness just refers to... Another translation of gentleness is meekness. And the Greek word for meekness, what it doesn't mean is weakness. Some people think that if you're meek, you're weak. And a sissy, that is not true. Jesus was called meek in the Gospels, but he was not a sissy. Jesus was powerful, strong, a man of great conviction. At times Jesus even got angry. He always got angry at the right time, though, didn't he? There were times where Jesus vented his wrath, didn't he? But gentleness or meekness in the Bible, it's a very specific word. It means meekness. best definition I've ever heard is power under control. The ability to control your emotions and particularly your anger so that you're not lashing out at people. It has no interest in revenge or malice towards anyone in an illegitimate way. That is gentleness. That is meekness. Now, somebody who is able to truly be meek or gentle in the midst of difficult people or trials or hard contributions, especially dealing with other difficult people, or when you have been wronged, and the natural inclination is to lash out in revenge, but the godly response is meekness. No, do not lash out. It's Power under control. And we can do this as Christians because we know the promise from Scripture where Jesus and God said, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord, right? Now, if we try to settle all of our accounts in this life, then we are taking that prerogative and privilege away from God, who in the future said he was going to do it. And you know what? He's going to do it perfectly. 
So we need to let him do that. Because if we botch it up and mess around, uh, we could just very well mess something up that could have been a good thing uh, when we stand before the throne of God. And God is righteously uh, better than Judge Judy, by the way, pulling out what's true, what isn't, who's the liar, who's not, and setting all things right, perfect, and straight. We just need to leave that to him. So if we remember that, that God is going to do that on our behalf, then it is easier to not take vengeance. It is easier to be a gentle person towards others who particularly who have wronged us. Gentleness is that great truth that Jesus talked about in the Beatitudes where he said if somebody strikes you on the cheek, he doesn't just say don't retaliate. He goes a step beyond that, right? It's not just don't retaliate. It is turn the other cheek. That is supernatural gentleness, supernatural meekness. By the way, gentleness is one of the fruits of the Spirit. And in Galatians chapter 5, you've got those attributes, those virtues, those attitudes that we're supposed to have through the work of the Holy Spirit inside of us as Christians. Love, joy, peace, patience, goodness, kindness, gentleness. There it is. You know what that is saying? Gentleness is a byproduct of the Holy Spirit. Gentleness is a fruit of the Spirit. In other words, gentleness does not come naturally to us as sinners. It doesn't. We cannot conjure it up on our own. This is alien to humanity. Gentleness, this command. The only resource we have and the ability to be a gentle person is through the indwelling Holy Spirit that lives inside of every Christian. And you know what? That's true about just about every one of these attributes that we're going to look at. These are the fruits of the Holy Spirit being produced in our life. So we are totally dependent upon God and the Holy Spirit to help produce these attributes in our life. So the place to begin is, God, I want to be a person who's committed to unity on an individual basis in my home and in my church because I know you have said in your word that that will be an awesome testimony to the onlooking, unbelieving world. But, God, I cannot do it on my own. And I know in order to do that, in order to get to the place of unity, you said I need to begin with humility an honest assessment of myself. And God, I cannot do that. I love myself naturally. So God, help me with your Holy Spirit. Help me with your word. Help me with the Christian community to begin to make me a humble person and a gentle person. And we need to be dependent upon God every single day, praying, begging for his help, asking for his help, asking the help of our Christian community as well to help attain that goal and keep plugging away. And if you blow it, you stand up and you keep walking, don't you? and seek restoration and forgiveness from God. So we're going to stop there, and we're going to continue on with humility, then unity, part two, in two Sundays, as we seek to accomplish unity on behalf of Christ in the church. Let's go ahead and pray together right now, and and thank God once again for his word, and also just to have him help us in a real specific way, living the worthy life as a Christian. Father, we do thank you for today. Thank you for the Lord's Day, another day to celebrate your death and resurrection on our behalf. I thank you for the church, the saints, uh, the opportunity to gather. Thank you for every person that you brought here today, regulars and visitors. And God, I just pray that now you go before us, give us a sweet time of fellowship over the fellowship meal. Thank you for these reminders out of your word 2,000 years ago, but still pertinent priorities for us today. And God, I just pray that you would help every Christian in this room, including myself, to walk a lifestyle that is worthy of what is, since we call ourselves Christians. God, through the Holy Spirit and your word, you help us to be humble people, honestly assessing ourselves, who we are, our strengths and our weaknesses. You would convict us of sin. We'd be willing to repent when we are wrong. Also, we would forgive others. And also, God, that you would help us to be gentle, help us to have control of our emotions. 
and give appropriate responses, looking to you as the judge of all things who will perfect all things one day. We leave that in your hands. We thank you for this time. We commit it to you in Christ's name. Amen.